First uh, Peter chapter one, one through twelve. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for our salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. All right, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. The word is true. All right, welcome. I'm going to pray with you here as we get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day and this time together to hear from you, to hear a word from your word, God. We pray that you would speak uh, through me, through your word, uh, by your Holy Spirit, in the same way that Peter said here, that the gospel was preached through the Holy Spirit who was sent from heaven. Lord, we ask that the same gospel would be preached by the same Spirit today in this service. God, that people would be built up, that their eyes would be opened, that they would be encouraged. God, that they would be filled with hope. And God, that we would be a people who face our trials with living hope. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so good to have all of you here today. Glad that the lights are back on. Not sure about the air conditioning, but that'll that'll come in time as well. So anyhow, my name's Samuel. I'm one of the pastors here at Central, and it's good to open God's Word with you today. As we are in 1 Peter, and I asked Luke today if he would read verses 1 through 12 to give us... The, the broader context, but we are going to focus in on verses 5 through 7, and we might even get through 8 and 9, and we'll just see how the Lord carries us along here. So we've been talking the past several weeks about the, the, uh, the concept of suffering and the concept of hope. 
And we've said repeatedly that suffering is inevitable in this world. If we, if we look at the suffering that's happening in our world right now, all around us, there are endless examples. So many examples of suffering. I, I had one of those examples just this last week. Uh, a friend of mine texted me and, and, and told me that his, uh, his only child, his 17-year-old daughter, had passed away. Um, he didn't give me the details. And he said when he gets back to Kansas City, he'd like to meet and talk more about it. But uh, just a heavy, heavy blow uh, this week. And a reminder, once again, that we are living in a world that is filled with suffering. And, and much of that is unexpected. We don't know when it's coming. And I know that that's not an encouraging thing to think about. But the harder times get in our, in our country and in our world, the more that we are going to, to feel and see the effects of suffering in our church as well. Okay? It won't be just isolated and individual, but it will, be, it will come upon our church and we'll begin to feel the effects of that as a church body. And that was, that was the, the case back in the time when First Peter was written. The church was going through... A hard time is going through suffering. And you can just imagine with the persecution that was happening in the Roman Empire, Christians were being hunted, they were being beheaded. Paul himself was uh, beheaded. We know that from tradition that Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. It was a hard day and time for the church. And the more that we see suffering coming on the church, the more that we're going to see things that uh, Peter's audience was used to seeing. You can imagine with, with all of the persecution that was happening on the church in the first century that, that people were deserting the faith. And going back to the world, it was much easier to uh, just go back to business as usual and, and not withstand the... The, the suffering and the trials that were coming on the church. So people were deserting the faith. People would not stand by their profession. They would deny the Savior when they were confronted with that, whether or not they believed the gospel. And we also know from other books in the New Testament that people would, would no longer gather with the church. They were afraid to assemble with the saints. And so, for example, in, First Peter cha- or in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, we see an exhortation, do not forsake the assembling of the saints. Why? Why was that exhortation given? Because people were abandoning the fellowship of the saints. Um, and once again, these are, these are not encouraging things to think about. But the good news is that in the face of all the bad news, we, we have hope. We have a living hope. And, and that's, that's what Peter's letter is, is all about. If you remember, the, the focus or the theme verse or the purpose verse of this book is over in chapter 5. You can turn there with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. And we'll see a summary statement of why Peter wrote the book. And in chapter 5, verse 12, Peter says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. Okay, why, Peter? He says, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. My letter, 
contains the true grace of God. This is what I've written to you about, the true grace of God. And he says, stand firm in it. That is the thrust of this book. Stand firm in the true grace of God. So what is the grace of God? What is he wanting us to stand firm in? What does he want us us to stand firm or hold fast to? And that is all the way back in in chapter 1 in the text that Luke read today. So in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, we really see this summary verse of the book, stand firm in the grace of God. But when we, when we ask the question, what is this grace of God? What is, what is he talking about? What is the subject of this book been? We see that back in chapter 1, verse 10, when Peter wrote, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours Searched and inquired carefully. See, the grace of God that we stand in is the salvation that we are promised. It is this message of hope that we have. We are not a hopeless people. No matter what. No matter what we face. No matter what trial. We remain steadfast and hopeful. And so that is really the direction that we're taking today is that I want to exhort and challenge and encourage us to face our trials with living hope. Face your trials with living hope. And so as we review the the letter that, uh, that Peter has written here in the first two verses, we see the author and the audience. We won't go back and spend much time on that other than to point out in verse two that Peter highlights the process of sanctification. Do you see that there? First Peter chapter one, verse two. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God, the father, you are elect exiles in the sanctification of the spirit. So he's reminding his audience of their identity. He's saying, Remember that you are being sanctified. You are strangers and pilgrims in this world. This world is not your home. You're passing through this world. And in the process of passing through this world, you are going to be sanctified. And God is going to use suffering to accomplish his purposes in your life. So we see the author, the audience, and As we drop down into verses 3 through 12, we saw a four-part outline that we talked about last week. In verses 3 and 4, we see that Peter introduces the subject of living hope. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. So Peter introduces this concept of living hope and he begins to unpack and describe what is the living hope that we have. In verses 5 through 7, Today, we're going to see that living hope in action. What does it look like if a person really does have living hope? In verses 8 and 9, if we get to it today, we're going to see a foretaste of our living hope. A foretaste of our living hope, which is the joy that we experience in the process of sanctification. 
So there's a foretaste of the living hope. We haven't arrived yet. Our hopes have not yet fully been realized. But in the meantime, we experience the same joy that we will one day in heaven. It's glorious and it's inexpressible. And we get to experience that even before we cross the finish line. That's verses 8 and 9. And in verses 10 and 12, we see that our living hope is grounded in the word of God. The prophets foretold this grace, this salvation. So the living hope that we have, what is it? That's always the challenge to go back and take these these terms that can be abstract at first when we hear them and define them and understand them in more concrete ways. So the living hope, Peter says there in verse three, we're leading up to verse five, so stay with me here as we are working through this and by way of review. But in verse three, Peter says that we have been born again to this living hope through the resurrection to an inheritance. So the living hope that we have is the coming inheritance. It is a heavenly hope. It is a salvation from sin, from death, and from everything in this world. So, in, in thinking more about the, uh, the inheritance that we have, I, I wanted to broaden out this, last, this past week as I was studying and see more of what the Bible says about our inheritance. And if you do a word search on the word inheritance in the Bible, it's, it will take you all over Scripture, and you will find Scripture after Scripture talking about the inheritance that we have as believers, the hope that we have and the salvation that we have as believers. One example that I thought was really helpful was in Isaiah 57, verse 13. You can write that down. I'll read it to you. But if we want to have a, have a good understanding about what this inheritance is, it says in Isaiah 57, verse 13, When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you, the wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. So if you remember the, the holy mountain that's spoken about in Isaiah, it, it's, it's, it's Jerusalem. It's the mountain of the Lord. It's where the Messiah will live and where he will reign when he returns. And in Isaiah 57, 13, it says that if you take refuge in the Lord, you will possess the land and inherit the holy mountain of God. So the inheritance is the, the dwelling place of God. In Hebrews 1.14 in the New Testament, speaking of the angels, it says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So according to Hebrews 1 verse 14, the angels are serving those who are going to inherit salvation. So your inheritance is salvation. It is the dwelling place of God. It is the, the kingdom that is to come. As I worked my way through the scriptures and studied inheritance, I, I came down to this basic definition. The inheritance of the saints is the total package 
of God's king, God's kingdom, and God's glory. And it all belongs to us because of Christ. It's the total package. So when Peter talks about the inheritance here, and he says we have a living hope, we have this inheritance that's waiting for us, that's kept in heaven for us. It is the total package of God's king, God's kingdom, and God's glory. And it's, and it's yours. <laughs> no matter what happens in this life, no matter what trial we face, no matter how bad it gets, no matter how hopeless it feels, no matter how bleak the circumstances, no matter how depressed and how downcast, no matter how far behind you are on the scoreboard, you have this living hope, this inheritance. And so because we have this living hope and this inheritance, how should we live and respond? Because we want to face our trials differently than the world does. When the world faces trials, they they lose hope. (laughs) The fact that they have no hope to begin with is exposed. But what about you and what about me when we face trials? Do we face them with courage? Do we face them with confidence? Do we face them with hope? Is our life characterized by this living hope? Well, that shouldn't be the case when we contemplate the glories and the greatness of the kingdom that God has promised us. So as Peter moves on here from the inheritance in verse 4 that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you, he goes on to say that God's power is guarding us through faith, for this salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And last week we said that God is guarding us and he is protecting us, and therefore we have this eternal security, that once we are saved, God will see us safely to the other side. He'll see us safely to the other side. And he's not just waiting for us. He's with us. Behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age, he says. So he will see us safely through the other side. We are being protected by God's power through faith until our hope becomes a reality. So to follow the logic of Peter here, because we have this living hope, we should trust in our living Savior. Because we have this living hope, let us trust in our living Savior. Why? Because he is protecting us. And again, what is it that protects us according to the text? Look down at your Bibles. It says that God's power is protecting us. So imagine that you're on a a dangerous journey. And you are, you're fearful and you're wondering, am I going to reach the other side? I've always wanted to go whitewater rafting on the Colorado River. Has anybody gotten a chance to do that? Okay. It's awesome. Like down through the Grand Canyon. Okay. Well, depending on what season it is, that can be a life-threatening uh, 
journey, but it's also sounds like a lot of fun. But the the if you were to put me on a raft uh, during the, uh, the the time of when the rapids are the the, the most intense, and you would put me on a raft and say good luck, I would be very fearful. <laughs> How am I ever going to make it through the, this? This canyon. I've never been down this road. I've never seen these rapids. I don't know where the, the falls are. I don't know where the rocks are. I don't know where all the danger is. But if you were to put uh, in that same rap with me a guide who's been down that river for the last 25 years of his life, and he knows every twist and turn of the river, he knows where the, where the, the currents are and where they're dangerous, then I would, I would have great confidence. Um, that, I, that he was going to carry me through. So when I, when I face trials, how do I know that I'm going to reach the other side? How do I know that I'm actually going to one day receive this inheritance? And Peter says, take heart. You are being guarded by God's power. He is working to protect us. And so before we move on today, I, I, I thought it would be important to, to deepen that and to, to spend some more time talking about the, the, the guarding of God's power. Because for me, I, I, I practically want to understand how does this look in our lives? How does it work for God's power to work in my life for protection through faith? So according to the text here, God's power works through our trust in God. Faith can be a little bit abstract sometimes. We need to make sure that that's a a well-defined, well-understood term. Faith is just trust. It's believing in God. So God's power, it says it works through our trust in God. So as we trust in our powerful God, his power works in us to protect us. God is powerful, but we need that power. How do we get that power through trusting in him? What does that look like? It looks like turning to his word. It looks like turning to prayer. We rely on the Lord, trust in him. We believe in him. And as we do those things, his power comes surging into our lives. For what purpose? To protect us. To protect us from what? To protect us from sin. To protect us from darkness, to protect us from the devil. We need protection. God's power will protect you through your faith. Peter says, anytime we lift up the shield of faith, think about it. Anytime we lift up the shield of faith to extinguish all the fiery darts of the evil one. Or anytime we take up the sword of the spirit, And we wield the sword of the spirit against the evil one. God's power is working to protect us. In order to lift the shield, we must have the strength to do so. In order to swing the sword of the spirit, we must have the strength to do so. That takes God's power. As we trust in him, he gives us the strength to fight. And he protects us from within. So as we think about verse 5, it says that God's power 
guards us through, fa- through faith for the salvation is ready to be revealed. Uh, that's encouraging. It's encouraging to know that God is with us, that God is going to see us safely through the other side, that we're not alone in the raft, that he is with us, and that he is powerful, that he is strong, and that he will keep us, and that he will see us through the storms to the other side. I keep having this thought come to mind, so I'll share the, the I'll share the, the the quick story. But oftentimes, when when Joy and I get home um, after a long day, and you know the kids are in the back of the van, and it's you know eight thirty nine o'clock at night, we're tired. Ah, we got one last thing to do, <laughs> and it's to get all the little people in the back of the van into bed, <laughs> safe and sound. And so we, we park the van in the driveway and we look at each other and we, we, we both look really tired and we know that it's going to be tough. And so we talk about the game plan and we say, okay, all right, so when we get inside, we're going to do this and you take this one and I'll take this one to the showers and, and, and you know, this is, this is the game plan. This is, this is how we're going to proceed. And uh, the last thing I say to Joy is, I'll see you on the other side. <laughs> Because <laughs> I know it's going to be a battle. I know it's going to be tough. And, and what is it that, 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 that gives us the strength to, to work through the trials that are before us? It is the power of God. And He is faithful time and time again to see us through to the other side. Um, yeah. That's God's promise. He'll see us through the storms. He is guarding us. He is protecting us. He is with us. Uh, somebody quoted earlier in a prayer, when we are weak, then we are strong. God's power is made perfect in weakness. And it is an awesome power. It is a glorious power. It is a power that manifests itself in such a way that people know that it didn't originate from the person who has the power. You look at that person, you think, well, that's a weak person. He shouldn't be able to do that. She shouldn't be able to withstand that. How do they endure those trials? It must be a supernatural power in their life that goes back to the living hope that we have. We're in this section, once again, in in verses five through seven, where we see living hope in action. What is it? look like practically when a person has living hope. They will have a courageous faith in God. And they will be strengthened by the Lord continually. The other quality that we will see besides faith is is joy. And we see that in verse 6. So people with living hope rejoice in hope. It says in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So he's going to make a transition in thought here now and start talking about trials. But before that, he says, In this you rejoice. The question is, what is this? What is he talking about? 
Well, he's just finished saying that you've been born again to a living hope, to an inheritance, and you're being guarded by faith for a salvation. Because you have this living hope that you have a glorious inheritance waiting for you and God is going to see you safely all the way through all of your days until you reach the other side, until you experience that inheritance, until you lay hold of that inheritance. In this you rejoice. You have a living hope and it will not be taken from you. And you will persevere through all the trials. God will never stop working in your life to take you through and take you across the finish line. So those with living hope rejoice in hope. Peter says, in this hope, you rejoice exceedingly. See the English word there in verse six? It says, in this you rejoice. That doesn't do the Greek word justice. And I'm not sure why they didn't translate it by adding that that one extra word exceedingly. The Greek word means to rejoice exceedingly. Do you remember when the wise men uh, left Herod's palace and, and Herod sent them on to Bethlehem to find the Christ child? And it says, as they were leaving Jerusalem, once again, they saw the star in the sky and it says, and they began to rejoice exceedingly. That's the kind of rejoicing we're talking about here. It's not just a, a matter of the will. Hey, I need to rejoice here. You know, I'm going through a really hard trial, but let's go ahead and, and perform an act of rejoicing. No, this is an uncontainable, overflowing, superabounding, supernatural joy. And Peter says, we have that kind of joy in the midst of trials. How do you know if a person has living hope? You look at their attitude in trials. You say, man, that guy has a hope that, that, that cannot be taken away. It doesn't matter what his circumstances are. His attitude is continually joyful. That's a person with living hope. A person who's being guarded by faith and a person who's rejoicing even in the midst of trials. No matter what. And it's not easy. And it's not something that we can do in our own strength, is it? Because Peter says there, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, those seem to be contradictory terms. So are we rejoicing or are we grieving? Yes. (laughs) In fact, Peter writes several things about trials here that we should take note of. Peter writes very honestly about trials. He doesn't minimize trials, but he explains them with clarity and according to the true nature of trials. So first of all, Peter says that trials ought not and they should not, and hopefully we have a conviction so that they will not prevent us from being hopeful people. And I say that because Peter opens in verse six by saying, in this you rejoice, even though you're grieving, you rejoice. The trial is not so strong 
that it can prevent you from this exceeding rejoicing, this act of exceedingly rejoicing. Trials cannot kill a living hope. Does it make sense? Our hope is greater than our trials. Even in the face of death, what's the worst thing that can happen to us? Death. Even in the face of death, we have a living hope. So trials cannot prevent us from being hopeful people if we have an eternal perspective. If we are remembering that we have this living hope. Trials are not stronger than our hope. Peter also says that trials are short-lived. Do you see what he says in verse 6? If necessary, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, you have been grieved. Trials don't last. Just write that in all caps in your, in your, in your notes. <laughs> Trials don't last. Living hope lasts. Trials don't last. They will surely come to an end. I need to be reminded of this when I was when I was working at UPS and I was loading the trucks. And the way that it works at UPS is they have these these uh, cages that come around on this conveyor belt. And and the cages are filled with packages that you have to take into your trucks. And I was on, uh, you know, uh, they call it a pull. So whatever your your truck is and your cage numbers, that's your pull. And I was on a pull that was particularly difficult. It was, yeah, they, they stacked me up with a lot of work to do each day. And I can remember sometimes at the end of the day when those cages kept coming around and around and every single cage that came was just so packed full of boxes. And I can remember uh, feeling faint and losing hope and feeling like this is never going to end. And I had a mentor the UPS was, uh, they, they would pair you with a mentor. And one day, I remember feeling uh, particularly defeated and coming off, the, off of my box line and meeting with my mentor. And I didn't even tell him how I was feeling, but he read my mail. Have you ever had somebody do that? Where they, they start talking to you in such a way as they know what you're thinking? We call that reading your mail. Well, this guy read my mail. He, uh, he, he, uh, he told me, he says, you know, I know, I know how it is on a box line. He goes, I know what it's like when those, when those cages keep coming around and over and over and over again, and, and you feel like it's never going to come to an end. He's like, that's not true. It always comes to an end. It, it, it never lasts. You never know if your supervisor is going to call somebody over to help you out in the midst of, of, of your, uh, your difficulty and your stress, or... It might, you might just have to let the, the cages come around a few more times. But eventually, uh, that, those cages are going to be empty. And all those packages are going to be on your truck. You don't ever have to worry about that. And I needed to hear that. I needed to hear that trials don't last. Peter says that they only last for a little while. And it doesn't feel that way. It doesn't feel that way when you've been battling sickness for five years. It doesn't feel that way when you, when you have a broken heart and, and every minute seems like an hour. 
It doesn't feel that way when, when you're in some kind of a, a painful situation. It feels like it's never going to end, right? That's the message that comes to us through those trials. But God's power should protect you from that message. As you trust in God and lean not on your own understanding, those trials will not last. They will come to an end. God is going to see you safely through the other side. Trials only last a short while. They're short-lived. As one of my friends taught me to say long, a long time ago, this too shall pass. Have you heard that saying? This too shall pass. And, and I'm not saying that we, we don't grieve. I'm not saying that we pretend like the trials aren't painful and that we don't take the time to process them in a healthy way. But we know that this too shall pass. All things will become new. Trials are necessary. Peter says that as well about trials. In verse 6, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So trials are necessary. And we'll see why in in a few minutes. We see that trials cause sorrow. They are necessary and they cause grief and sorrow. In verse 6, you have been grieved by various trials. We see that trials come in all shapes and sizes. Peter says you've been grieved by various trials. They're not all the same. It could be that your, your kid's spilling milk on the table. That's a trial. It could be the perfect storm of life where you got a flat tire on the way to an important meeting and you're going to... You know, you're going to miss the interview or whatever the case may be. Trials come in all shapes and sizes. And they, they grieve us. They make us sad. But they have a purpose. And that's what Peter comes down to. He says they have a purpose. They last for a little while, they grieve us, they come in all shapes and sizes, but they have a purpose. In verse 7, we see the purpose of trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that is, your faith is more precious than gold. Gold perishes, though it is tested by fire. Gold is a very precious metal, and in order to to refine gold and and get to the the pure gold, it's put in the fire, it's melted, and then the dross comes to the top. And the dross is skimmed away, and you're left with the, the pure element. And Peter says, you know, gold is so precious and important that they'll put it through this process in order to... To get the purest form of it. How much more precious is your faith? He's like gold over time. It's just going to corrode once again. It's going to pass away. Gold is perishable. Your faith is imperishable. How much more precious is your faith? Therefore, your, te- your faith is being proven. There in verse 7, it says the tested genuineness of your faith. The Greek there is, is 
maybe a more simple way of putting it, so that your proven faith or your tested faith, your, test, your faith that has been proven and tested by these trials, it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So trials have a purpose. They test whether or not your faith is genuine. Is your faith real? Is it authentic? Multitudes of people say they believe in Jesus. You know what's going to prove whether or not that's true? Trials, suffering, pain. That's what's going to prove it. That's going to separate the, the, the men from the boys. It's going to set the, the, true, the true believers from the false converts. Peter says, and it was happening in the first century. People were leaving the faith, leaving the church, proving that their faith was not genuine. Jesus, why are you putting your church through this? Why are you letting us suffer? Why are you letting this person go through that trial and that trial? He is proving our faith. The, the impurities in our hearts are coming to the surface. But the faith below those impurities is being proven. It is being refined. It is being strengthened. Trials test the strength and the purity of your faith. Do you really trust God? How much? How long? How strong? You say you trust God, but are you going to hold on? Are you going to believe when everyone else is walking away? Are you going to remain faithful to his word? Knowing that he's going to come in the nick of time and give you the power that you need to prevail through this trial. This trial will not last. And when the clouds part and the sun shines through again, will you have been faithful? Will you be found faithful? That's the question. Is your faith genuine or not? So trials have a purpose. But they not only test your faith and prove, prove it and purify it and refine it, in the process of doing those things, they, the, the trial will qualify you for, com- <laughs> be careful how I say this word, commendation. Trials qualify us for commendation. They qualify us for the praise that comes from God. I know that probably sounds strange to your ears. I'll show it to you in Scripture so that you will see it for yourself. But notice that Peter says, gold perishes. Even though gold is tested by fire, it will still perish. But the whole point of these trials that your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's make sure that we are that we're seeing this together. It 
It says there at the beginning of verse 7 that these trials have come so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, etc., may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What, what, what is Peter talking about? What is it that is going to be found to result in praise and honor and glory? What is it? He's talking about faith. And he's saying when that faith survives all the trials and when that faith is refined and Jesus returns, you will be rewarded with praise from God. You will be rewarded with God's glory. He will share it with you and God will honor you when his son returns. And I say that because the emphasis here or what Peter is connecting this praise and honor and glory to is he's connecting it to your faith. And he's saying that faith will result in these things. The Greek word there to, to help clarify this, because I, I do think it's a difficult verse seven is difficult. OK, the way that it's worded, you can even see in the English, they've got these hyphens and <laughs> it's, it's it's in Greek. It's written backwards. I mean, it, it's 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 hard. OK, verse seven is, is challenging. So for the sake of, of trying to clarify this with us. The, the uh, verse where it says that it may be found to result in. The Greek word there is, is it will be discovered. It will be discovered in that day. I, I believe this is what Peter's saying. When Christ returns, your faith is going to be like this, this gold nugget that is discovered in that day. And imagine when somebody picks up a gold nugget and they hold it up and they go, look at what I found. Look at how pure this is. Look at how wonderful and how beautiful this is. That's the picture that Peter is painting. That when Christ returns, your faith will be discovered. It will be uncovered. It will be revealed for what it really is. And it will be praised. God will say, look at this faith. Look at this person. Look at the trials they went through. Look at how they believed. Let's give them the crown of life. 1 Peter 5 verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. He's speaking here to the elders. But still, we see this concept that when Christ returns, there will be glory given for faithful shepherding. Matthew 25, 21. The master said to his slave, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's praise. Servant, you done good. <laughs> you did well. Good job, son. I'm so proud of you. That's praise. John 5, verse 44, Jesus says to the Pharisees, how can you believe 
when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. See, you're, you're praising each other. You've got this, this fanfare cult all set up and it's all about the praise of man and, and the fear of man. He's like, if, if, if you're going to go that direction, then how are you ever going to receive the glory that comes from the only God? How are you going to seek the glory that comes from the only God? That's John 5, verse 44. You can look that up. But I, I believe what Jesus is saying is that you can either seek the, the praise of man and the glory of man, and you can seek the praise and the glory of God. I want to hear my master say on that day, well done, good and faithful servant. I think that's what Peter's pointing, at, pointing to here. When Jesus returns, he will commend the faithful. Jesus is going to, to raise up his people and go, these are my people. <laughs> and he's going to point out to the world, and, and you've, you've persecuted them. And now vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But there are other passages that we'll look at in 1 Peter when it talks about the Gentiles on the day of visitation will glorify God in heaven because of your good works. They will be forced to confess when Jesus returns that the Christians were faithful. They were true to the Lord. One last verse here, James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Blessed is the man. So what is Peter saying here in verse 7? I believe he's pointing out that Trials qualify us for common commendation. <laughs> have to be careful not to say condemnation. <laughs> commendation. Commendation. He commends us. Well done, good and faithful servant. You endured the test. Your faith is genuine. Enter into the joy of your master. Come home. It's good to see you. Welcome home. I've been waiting for you. That's what he'll say in verse 7 may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes back and is glorified, he's going to share that glory with us. So, how do people with living hope respond in trials in light of these scriptures? I've tried to become very practical at this point. First of all, they are, they are hopeful. If you have a living hope, obviously you're going to be hopeful in trials. I know it goes without saying, but hopeful people remain confident and positive in the midst of adversity. I don't know how God's going to provide in the midst of this trial, but I know that he will. <laughs> I know that he's faithful. I know that if he doesn't give us the power, we're not going to make it. But the Bible says that he is keeping us by his power through our faith. So we're going to trust him. We're going to believe in him. He's going to supply our every need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And he is going to give us what we need to get through this trial. And not only 
make it to the other side. But to make it to the other side in such a way that glorifies him. It's not enough to survive a trial. I want to rejoice in trials. I want to glorify God in trials. I want to be sanctified in the process of going through trials. I want to remain confident and positive in the midst of adversity. This is different than the people that we talk to all the time who say, I'm just trying to stay positive. And all hell is breaking loose in their lives. And they say, I, I'm just trying to stay positive. But, the, but they're not basing that positivity. And they're not basing that hope on anything that the Bible says. They're trying to remain positive for positive, positivity's sake. That's not living hope. The reason I'm positive, the reason I'm confident is because I have Jesus in me and with me, working through me. That gives me this boldness and this confidence. That's different than I'm just trying to keep it positive and I cancel out the negative people around me. People with living hope, how do they respond in trials? They keep their focus on the Lord, not on their circumstances. We've said this the past couple of weeks, but if you want to lose hope, look at the world. Look at the circumstances around you. Look at all the bad things that just keep happening day in and day out. That will, that will steal your hope. That will steal your joy. You must keep your eyes on the word and on the Lord of the word. People with living hope keep their focus on the Lord. They know that this world is hopeless that you cannot find hope in this world. Or that anything in this world that you do put your hope in, it can be seized and taken away and stolen. Even our very lives can be taken away. We have to have something greater than this world, greater than ourselves to hope in. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came into a hopeless world to give us a living hope. People with living hope remember the word of God and trust in it, especially when their circumstances seem to contradict it. Remember, we, we quoted Romans 4. I think it's around verse 18. You have to check me on the reference there, but it talks about Abraham. And it says that he hoped against hope. When God made him... These, these promises that one day that his wife was going to have a baby and she had been barren her entire uh, 90 years of life. And God says, she's going to bear you a son and that son will inherit the promises. It says that Abraham hoped against hope. In other words, everything was working against his hope. All of the circumstances were against him and he hoped against those things. You see, all of those things were against hope he was hoping against those things. Hoping against hope. Hoping in spite of everything that was against his hope. Does that make sense? Hoping against everything that was against his hope. You have to work on these things that are written in Scripture. Man, what does that mean? How do we say that? How do we live that? How do we believe that? How do we hold on to that? How do we hope in that? We have to understand it. 
We have to wrestle with the, with the scriptures and the text. Ask God to bring the, the truth of it down into our hearts. People with a living hope keep an eternal perspective. That's really what Peter is, is writing about here. Keeping an eternal perspective. Regardless of what happens in this life, don't forget you have a, 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 a heavenly inheritance waiting for you. An eternal perspective. People with an eternal perspective have their heights set on a perfect world and a perfect kingdom. And so they don't lose hope when this world comes crashing down all around them. So no matter what happens in this this world, in this life, your house could burn down, the country could fall apart, uh, your boyfriend could leave, your girlfriend, you, you could fail a test, whatever the case may be, no matter what the circumstances are in this world, we do not lose hope because our hopes are set on a, a perfect world and a perfect kingdom. You know, you can lose hope when your kid spills milk on the table, right? But don't forget, you have, there's a table set in heaven for you where all the cups are perfectly in place and nothing ever gets spilled. I have a living hope. I have a perfect kingdom in a perfect world that I'm looking to. Kingdoms rise. Kingdoms fall. People, people commit and people uh, fail to keep their commitments. But I have a living hope. I'm not going to place my hope on the things of this world. I'm not going to be depressed and discouraged by the things in this world because I keep my focus on Christ in the heavenlies, who is seated on the right hand of God. He is my living hope. And I fight for that. Because things in this world and sin is like gravity. It just tries to suck you down into this world. It tries to stress you out. It tries to defeat you with doubt. But no, I'm going to keep my hopes set on high. I'm going to look to the hills. Because that's where my help comes from. I'm going to trust that somehow, some way, God is going to work all of this out. He's going to work all things together for my good. I trust in his character. I believe in him. Even when everything in my life and my circumstances are lying to me and tell me that God's not good. He is not here. He has forgotten you. I say that is false. I believe the truth. I have a living hope. You're not going to kill my hope by telling me those lies. I want to tell you one more thing about people with living hope. People with living hope, their trials will make them better instead of bitter. I'll be honest, I probably heard that somewhere else. And I'll give the credit right now to, who, to whoever said it. But it came back to mind, and, and I'm not going to say that's original, but trials will make you better instead of bitter, if you have a living hope. We had, uh, we, this last week, we went up to Lawson Baptist Church and we, we played a worship concert there. I want to thank you guys all for praying for that event. It was really special. It was a great time. Well, we met a woman there from Lawson who lost her husband this past year to COVID. He's a younger, younger man. Um, I mean, I say younger, 50s, 60s maybe. 
But he came down with uh, COVID. They put him in the hospital. And, you know, he, he, he declined and, and, he, and he passed away. Very unexpectedly, this woman lost her husband. But instead of this trial making her bitter, she's become all the better for it. She has clung to her living hope. She was sharing with joy that because her husband suffered and died, she has had the opportunity to share the living hope of the gospel with uh, 10 times the number of people than she would have. Because anybody and everybody that she talks to, she tells them her story. She's like, this is what happens to my husband, or this is what happened to him. But that gives me the opportunity to tell people about the living hope that he had and the living hope that I have. And she was rejoicing. Can you believe it? This woman who dearly loved her husband, who was uh, grieved by this trial when it came, is rejoicing in the Lord because it has opened the door to share the gospel with countless numbers of people. In her mind, it's worth it to go through such a heavy loss so that she has the opportunity to proclaim the living hope. The trial has made her a better believer, not bitter. So what about you and the trials that you're facing? I've talked with uh, believers in our church even recently, and just the, the burdens that they're bearing are just heavy. And I know that throughout the congregation that there are many, many burdens, many, uh, many ways that people are suffering. I pray that these trials would make us better and not bitter. Peter says, in this you rejoice. Your salvation is far greater than these trials. Your, your salvation will last much longer than these trials. One day soon this will all be over and you have, you will inherit eternal life. You will inherit eternal life. Praise the Lord. I'm going to, to bring things to a close there. Um, and next week, we'll, we'll get into the verses 8 and 9, where we see that this, this refining of our faith produces uh, a, a sanctified life of love, of faith, and of rejoicing with a joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. So that's what we have to look forward to next week. All right, let's, let's close in prayer. God, you are our living hope. You came down into a hopeless planet that was headed for hell to give us hope. This is, this is uh, unmerited on our part. We do not deserve it. We did everything to reject it. The Bible says that Jesus came to his own 
and his own did not receive him. We are no better than the Jews back in those days who rejected you, God. We have, we have loved sin and run after sin long and hard. But you pursued us in, in, our, in our blindness, in our deafness, in our deadness. God, you pursued us. And the, and the, and the gospel was preached to us by the Holy Spirit's power and you quickened our dead hearts and you breathe into us the breath of eternal life. You gave us the Holy Spirit to make us new and you have given us a living hope. And God, I pray that we would be people who face our trials with hope, who demonstrate hope in the midst of trials, that we would not let the circumstances of this life dictate our responses, but we would go back to the living hope that we have, that we would remember that we are a people of hope, that we are, a, we are citizens of the heavenly kingdom in our conduct in our behavior, in our responses, in our reactions, should not be like the, the, the people around us in the world. But God, they should be holy. They should be sanctified. There should be love. There should be faith and joy in our responses if we have a living hope. God, maybe there are people here today that have been pretending to have living hope or they thought they had living hope but they have realized through the preaching of your word today that they do not have this great expectation of the inheritance that believers have God if there's anyone today in need of living hope I pray that they would turn away from their sin and the passing pleasures of sin and the short-lived pleasures of this life and they would give those things up and they would flee to refuge, flee for refuge to you, God. As it says in Isaiah 57, verse 13, those who seek refuge in me will inherit my holy mountain. If we want to inherit eternal life, we must flee for refuge to the Savior to give us living hope. God, for all of, us who are, all of those of us who are facing trials and temptations, and for those of us who have failed this week, God, I pray that you would revive our hopes, that you would forgive our sins. I pray that anyone in this room who is far from you, that they would repent and come running back to you. And God, you would restore you would restore and you would forgive and that you would keep your promise that all who come to you in faith will be freely pardoned. God, forgive my sin and, and the sin of your people. Times that we've fallen short this, this week and, and, and we did not live as if we had any kind of hope. We thank you for this day, Lord. Give us your power to live this week. And I pray that we would rejoice in our trials, no matter what they are. 
and, and bring glory to your name. And at the end of our days, our faith would prove to be genuine. In Jesus' name, amen.